Uh, no, that's a little bit dark. But I did name this Paul's Black Friday special because these verses explain to you what happens when you skip Thanksgiving in hope of something else, in hopes of a better deal. That's a terrible illustration, so we'll get it out of the way before we start recording. Um, go ahead and turn to Romans 1, verse 16. We're looking at 18 through the end of the chapter, but we'll start in 16 to orient some of you who have not been here. Uh, I love long introductions, so we'll try to keep this one very short. Paul, in the beginning few verses of chapter 1, has told the Roman church that he views as a partner church with him how much he longs to make that partnership more effective, how he longs to come to them and to be strengthened by them, but particularly that they would join him in his urgent task of moving the gospel into parts of the Roman Empire not yet reached by the gospel. And so he writes to them of their partnership with him in the urgent work of preaching the gospel. And even though their roles in that work look different, their commitment to it is the same because it is the goal and mission of the church. And then in verse 16, he explains in somewhat a shorthand what the rest of the book is going to be about. Now, I've been this week slowly but surely working my way through grading uh, the first papers that are due for SI, which is always a fun thing. And I have become very sympathetic with Paul because when you read somebody's paper that they put all those hard work into, and I do love reading over other people's shoulders as they write. It's so, so joyous to be able to read what they're studying and what they're thinking about the scriptures because that's the way the church works, right? You, you apply your own unique insights and gifts to the studying of the scriptures, communicate it clearly, and we grow from that. So I love that. And yet... I am, all, I am so aware of how much I want to know where they're going in, in this paper. I, I, like, please tell me what this is about so that I can read well with you, right? And so Paul does that for us. He's, he maybe spent so many years uh, as a younger man teaching others in Pharisee school or wherever that he gets the value of laying out clearly for his readers where they're going. And verses 16 through 17 do that as he is explaining the gospel to us. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation. Now, I, I didn't talk about this a whole lot last week, and as I thought about how I might circle back around to it this week, it occurred to me I don't need to, uh, to some extent. Yes, we could spend probably six weeks on these verses, but I would spend six weeks on these verses explaining to you how Paul fills in each one of these con, uh, concepts from the rest of Romans, because that's what he's going to do. So he, he's going to tell us about the power of the gospel. He's going to tell us about how the power of the gospel is to Everyone who believes, remember there is tension in the background of the church in Rome between the minority Jewish population that began the church and the Gentile population that's now in, uh, in ascendancy both because of politics and because of the rapid spreading of the gospel in that church. And so notice it's to everyone but to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. It's the power of God for salvation. It's also the righteousness of God being revealed. Now, we'll talk about that at length, but it's the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel. It's God's saving power, but also God's justice that's declared. I told you last week one of my favorite psalms, and I have just forgot the, quote, the, the reference to it, but righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. When God's gospel is revealed, there are no shortcuts to it. It instead proclaims the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ proclaim the absolute righteousness of God, and that's a righteousness that's not only intrinsic to him, 
but now imputed to you if you are in Christ. So it's a righteousness that's revealed in the gospel both about God and to you in Jesus Christ. And then he takes pains in verse 17 to remind us, as he did at the beginning of chapter 1, that this gospel is in full accord with the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. This is not a novel invention that he is asking them to send him out on a trip to proclaim. It is instead the fulfilled word of God now revealed clearly to the entire world. That's why he quotes at the end of verse 17, Habakkuk 2.4, and that theme of consistency with the Old Testament reoccurs beginning in chapter 2 and particularly in chapter 4 as we move forward. Now, let's read beginning, since I already read 16 and 17, beginning in verse 18. By the way, I think I said this a couple weeks ago, but if you're like, why are you always reading from the ESV when you love to teach from the NASB? I think I told you this, but I memorized Romans and ESV a long time ago and I can't shake it. And so it seemed better to me, instead of mixing translations all the way through, that I just stick with what's in my head because it's what's going to come out. So it's good for you. If you're reading in NASB, then you get two angles at the text, which is a, a benefit, not a drawback. So uh, beginning in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Father, as we consider our role in your church and the preaching of the gospel, may we not be ashamed of it. May we clearly know, proclaim, and apply to our own hearts the truth of our desperate situation apart from Christ. For this is the dark blackness 
against which your gospel grace shines so beautifully. Magnify Christ in what we read today. It's in his name that we pray this. Amen. Paul immediately, as he's not ashamed of the gospel and is concerned to communicate to them the message that he teaches, he immediately moves from the joyful righteousness revealed in the gospel to the dreadful unrighteousness revealed and confirmed through God's wrath exercised against humankind. How does, how does Paul want us to think about this most controversial topic, the wrath of God revealed? Those are fighting words in our world. Wrath is a bad word in many ways in our, in our world. How does, God want, or how does Paul rather want us to think about not only the nature of God's wrath that's revealed, but the universal effect that this revelation heralds? Well... Paul wants us to consider, quite simply, the condemnation of all mankind and the corruption of all mankind. Condemnation in verses 1 through 23, or 18 through 23, rather, and the corruption evident in verses 24 through the end of the chapter, verse 32. We'll see that this universal condemnation of mankind is the result or results in, those two things intertwine in this chapter, of the suppression of God's truth, the silencing of God's reality, and the swapping of God's glory. There you go, it's alliterated. The swapping of God's glory for anything else. So if you want those, maybe without the, the ing at the end, it's suppression, silencing, and swapping, or suppress, silence, and swap, whichever you prefer. Before we move too much into the details on this, I, I thought it would be worth framing your minds, preparing your minds for thinking about this in a way that I've found helpful to me, or maybe in a way that I've been warned by Scripture as I think about this. When I read these verses, there are moments, usually fleeting moments, in my thinking and in my heart where I want to say, that's not the way it is, or surely that couldn't be true, or usually not articulated that clearly in my head, just discomfort about what I've read or thought. And I think it would be helpful to you as it is to me to be alert to those things. When you read that God's wrath is revealed because men did not honor him as God, if your heart at that moment expresses a bewilderment or a frustration with the severity of God's wrath revealed against the supremacy of God's glory. If you're like, how could the, really he wants us to worship him and if he doesn't, he will punish us? If that causes fleeting or sustained discomfort in your heart, be alert to that because what this passage is doing is it's reframing our reality. 
you and I, and this is the second part of this warning and encouragement as you read this, you and I are universally under the effect of this passage. Now, if you're in Christ, you have been redeemed from the power of sin revealed in this passage, but you live still in the flaming hulks of these burned out sinful bodies with all the residual fleshly effect of thinking and wanting to think in these ways. Now, by God's grace, he's transforming that, but you don't get full transformation. You don't get full relief from this passage until you are in glory. And so, at times, I might say, as we move through this, you, and by saying you, by bringing that condemnation home in such a direct you manner, I don't want you to hear in my enthusiasm me exempting myself from this. As I've read this and have read this for many years and memorized this years ago and moved through this passage, I say to myself regularly, you, Nathan, are under the reality of this passage. And so when you experience that discomfort, it's an opportunity to, to, to grab that and think, is my thinking and is my heart wrongly aligned? Is it aligned in a rebellious fashion against what God so clearly says here? I, I, I almost assure you there are points in your thinking that, aren't, are, that struggle to align with what God is saying here. And bring, bring the reality of this passage home to your own heart. Now, it is both my, my confident expectation and my joy that most of you have done that and, and that most of you have moved from this condemnation to the glorious truth of the gospel. But it is a weighty passage and one whose weight we dare not seek to escape. There is universal condemnation of all mankind. At the same time that Paul heralds the gospel of God, the righteousness of God being revealed, he reminds them that the wrath of God is revealed. Now, when Paul says both righteousness and wrath, in Paul's thinking, there is always a future element to these things. Some point, God's wrath and God's justice will come home to a satisfying conclusion. There will be full final justice. God's wrath will be expressed in a full, final way. That's both perilous and comforting to us, right? But here Paul also reminds us that God's ultimate justice and judgment is revealed all the way through the course of human history. He's not a passive judge who always sits back and never brings home the consequences of sin. In fact, he's personally involved in bringing his justice and witnessing to his justice throughout the history of the earth in such a way that one commentator I read said that the history of humanity is the history of God's wrath. Right? From Genesis 3 till now, his wrath is revealed, and that's what we're particularly going to notice in Paul's condemnation this morning. Notice he's working backwards in his plan that he told us about in chapter, uh, verses 16 through 17, that the gospel comes to the Jew first and also the Greek. He's reversed that. He's going to work from the general back to the Jews in chapter 2. So he's starting now with all the nations, a universality of condemnation that affects both Jew and Greek, and he'll work back to a particularity to talk about how the Jews also fall under this condemnation in chapter 2. The wrath of God is revealed. It's revealed from heaven. It, it's revealed with full authority. And it's revealed against, notice this, all ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men. Now, so far, what we see here is that the wrath is revealed against a certain sort of behavior we haven't seen, and universally all evil behavior, we haven't yet seen that this is applying to all people. Bear with me, he'll get there. But this wrath and God's truth are, Paul says, suppressed. The wrath is there. We'll see that as we move through it. It's not the wrath that's suppressed. It's the truth about it that's suppressed. Right? The wrath is happening. The wrath is happening in people who think that they're partying at points. The reality of what's happening is suppressed. How? How is this possible that God's ongoing wrath is suppressed. You would think this would be the sort of thing that God's wrath is revealed and everybody knows what's happening. Instead, he's telling you that there is a numbing of the entirety of the human race towards what is actually real about the human race. The means of this suppression is the very same thing that the wrath is punishing. Men's unrighteous hearts are the means of suppressing the truth about God's response to their unrighteous hearts. The rebellious act is the numbing agent. How, Paul? How does this work that men can so effectively, by their rebellion, suppress their rebellion? I mean, think about how unusual this is in the terms of human ex experience, right? If you've been following the news at all in the last couple of weeks, you've seen protests of, of course, that's the last couple years, I've really, I suppose, in almost anything, but protests of every possible sort. I guess the cool thing to do right now is not to actually do anything helpful. It's just to go walk around and carry signs. That's not to say that protests aren't always helpful, but for the most part, they're unhelpful, right? And, and protesting is the cool thing to do. It's the cool way to show your outrage at something. But what is? It's very visible. You go around and say, whatever your cause is, you go around and chant and say, I don't like this thing. I'm going to break people's windows because I don't like this thing, right? <laughs> And it's, it has a visible intended effect. In this case, Paul is saying that we have confused ourselves to say that our very acts of rebellion aren't rebellion. It's exercising a protest and pretending that we're not protesting while we're doing it. How is that possible? Well, it turns out that's the core. It's not a side of it. It's the heart of the nature of the rebellion. Protesting, rebelling, and saying, we're not rebelling, is the rebellion. It's the core of it. It's the heart of it. How is that so? Because we don't just suppress the truth. We silence God. By the way, truth in the New Testament is always something that you don't just say, oh, yeah, that's true. Like a fact on a game show. Oh, yeah, that's true. Play the Jeopardy music. No. Truth in the Bible is something that you both acknowledge to be true, and bring yourself underneath. It's something to be obeyed. The response to truth in the New Testament is obedience, not merely assent. Okay? Demons assent to truth. They don't obey it. But in this case, the suppression of the truth is the silencing of God. Notice verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. The reality of God, I love the translation plain because it just seems so dull, right? It's plain to them. How plain is it? It's like the cereal box sitting in front of you on the table when you're hungry in the morning. Oh, I should eat that, right? It's just, it's a self-evident truth. 
Now, I want you to hold on to that for a particular reason. There are people who approach this particular passage and turn it into a logic game, right? If you have three degrees in logic and apologetics, you can puzzle out from this a universal proof for the fact that God exists to people who also share your enthusiasm for logic games and puzzles, right? But that is not what this passage is claiming. There are wonderful, helpful things to be done in the world of apologetics. I'm not knocking that. I'm just simply saying that this passage is dealing with self-evident, smack you in the face like a cereal box on Sunday morning when you're hungry, okay? Truth. You don't have to be particularly intelligent to grab the cereal box, right? You just have to be human. And that's the core of Paul's argument here. It's so plain even a baby could do it, right? Why? why? Why is this truth so plain? Well, it's not because people are so good at thinking. In fact, that's going to be the whole point of this passage. Our thinking's broken. So how can this truth be clear when our thinking is irrevocably broken? Because God has shown it to them. The agent of understanding is God himself. If you were here for hermeneutics week a couple of weeks ago, I told you that God overcomes the accommodation gap because he's God. He has the authority and the power to make himself known. And in this particular case, he's made himself known universally to everyone in a particular way. Notice verse 20. How has he been known? How has he who is invisible, he who we don't see in our world around us, known to everybody in this world, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived? How? In the things that have been made and since when? Ever since the creation of the world. The cereal box says God is real. Like the cereal, because I, I say that on purpose, because what do people usually do? When you wake up in the mountains and you're sipping your coffee and you're looking at the sunset coming up over the horizon and then it strikes you, oh, God is real. You know what? That's true. Sunsets do that. Sunrises do that even when you're sleeping, right? The whole created order does this. The fact that there's a cereal box, not a cereal puddle, is because God holds the universe together by the word of his power. One of my dead friends that I read for this, actually might not be dead yet, will be someday. Um, one of the commentators I read for this says this, God has stitched his greatness into the fabric of the human mind so that his majesty is instinctively recognized when one views the creative world, right? Every aspect of the created order is by God's created design of you an instinctive proclamation, there's a God. And why do I think it's important to talk about the cereal box? Because we're making a universal application, not a particular. Not everybody gets to wake up and see a beautiful sunrise when you're having a nice cup of coffee up in the mountains, right? But everybody experiences the created order, and it's the universal experience of all human beings to know by the way God has made them, there is one who has eternal power and a divine nature. There is a God. God proclaims it. They know it. And they are therefore, and they, I mean you and me, are without excuse. But it's not merely a passive ignorance. It's an active rebellion. Now, notice 
they don't just suppress the rebellion by silencing God, they also engage, we engage in a swapping of allegiances, a swapping of glories. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. If you want to talk about a verse that we could spend a lot of time on, it's this verse. The, the claim of this verse is that the foundation of Ivy League institutions is foolishness. It's not the result of, it's the foundation. But not merely Ivy League institutions. You, when you wake up every morning with zero education, if you live somewhere where there is no opportunity to have any education, right? And we, we never want to excuse from this one aspect or another aspect of humankind. All human wisdom is founded on this exchange Claiming to be wise, their foolishness is revealed. What's the exchange? They've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for anything else. How? How does this come about? Notice the concession here that Paul says. They knew God. We established that. They knew God. And knowing that there was a God, they did not, you did not, I did not, the baby Eva delivered last night, except she was in Florida, but the baby she delivered last night knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Notice the centrality of God in the definition of sin. We got 14, well, no, we've got 12 verses to get to. They were filled with all manner of evil, unrighteousness, you know, right? All the bad things that are the result of this. This is the core of the definition of sin right here in this text. All mankind, now we've got to universalities, right? They've all seen it and all result this way knew God, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And it's interesting because Paul is going to, uh, in a way that I wasn't as sensitive to before I taught through Genesis, Paul is going to run through this whole chapter to Genesis 1 to make his argument. Because he's making a universal argument about the nature of the world and the created order, he runs right back to Genesis 1 to make this argument, and he makes this argument about the nature of being an image bearer. If you want to, and you're such a nerd that you have time to do this, you can go back and listen to the, the week or two I did on what does it mean to be made in the image of God. But at the very core of it, it is that humankind is the pinnacle of God's creation in a way that it reflects the glory of God to the rest of the world. God, God made men and women together to image his glory in the world so that there is a focal point for God's glory and the good creation that he made. And that focal point that reflects all of the glory nature of God in a tiny little compact made from dirt model is humankind. The image reflects the reality. Our honor reflects his honor. Your job is a mirror, right? Right? 
I know I'm going back and forth between verses 21 and 23, but it's a quick way to explain this. What does it mean that they didn't honor him as God? They swapped the mirror. The image who's supposed to reflect the glory of God has now said, I want to reflect lesser mirrors, including ourselves. Notice that. There's not just, sometimes when we say idolatry, we think, oh, they worshiped something that looks like it came out of Indiana Jones, right? You are more grotesque than anything I saw in the last Indiana Jones. Your own heart, your own lusts, your own and my own heart, lust, thinking. We want to reflect ourselves. The, the images have lost their way. What does it mean to honor him as God? Well, first, I already mentioned this, it's the obedience factor. But notice, notice how important thanks is in this. And if your heart had a little twinge of God's mad that we didn't say, well, of course he's God. God's mad that my whole life wasn't arranged in such a way and ordered in such a way and my passions and my energies weren't directed in such a way that everything about me screams, there is a great God. Notice the character of this God. He's one that we ought to what? Give thanks to. You don't give thanks to Molech unless you're scared, right? That's a, that's a bad thing. But we'll see in a minute about the nature of this God. He's blessed forever. He's a God that at every moment, the reality of his nature and character ought to cause us to cry out, he is so good. It's that refusal to give thanks, that refusal to acknowledge with every atom of your being the goodness of the creator that is the heart of the human problem. It's a Black Friday suppression, right? You've skipped Thanksgiving to say, I have my own wisdom, and it's based on the fact that, what does Carl Sagan say? The cosmos is all there is and ever was, right? But think about that. That is, in our world, what is the nature of human wisdom? The foundation of human wisdom is, we cut God out of it, and now we can be wise. Right? You know, uh, I think it was Freud who famously said he heard the bells tolling for God because the world had killed him. He wasn't saying he'd kill God. He was saying the entire establishment of natural thinking, the entire way that we teach people to think, has said, as its premise, God's not there. He's not real. He's dead. Notice the catastrophic effects of cutting God out of your thinking. Verse 21, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The big fancy word for this is the noetic effects of the fall. Noetic is your thinking process. What does it mean? Every thought that you have by nature from birth, as we'll see in chapter 5, because you are descended from Adam, and because I am descended from Adam, is a nature that chooses to suppress the truth, chooses to silence God, and chooses to build its thinking around this central premise, there is no God and I hate him. The failure of thanksgiving is the failure of thinking in the entirety of human history. It's an exchange. It's an exchange 
of an image who reflects the glory of the undying God for an image that is mucking around in the dirt of creation to find something else to focus its passions, its desires, and its glory on. Notice the Genesis 1 language here in verse 23. Man, birds, animals, creeping things. That's the descending order of creation in Genesis 1, and he's saying they're just mucking around in the dirt, looking lower and lower. This condemnation of mankind is universal, and it is evidenced in the corruption of all mankind. The corruption of all mankind. Paul will draw our attention to three separate areas of condemnation. He'll draw attention to, uh, of corruption. He'll draw attention to how our desires have been corrupted, how our sexuality has been corrupted, and how our interactions with one another have been corrupted. So there, our corruption is both sensual, sexual, and having to do with society, or maybe it's better if you want the wise on the end of it, sensuality, sexuality, and society. Now, these are representative examples for Paul. They're not comprehensive. He's making points by diving deep and looking broadly, right? But he's not saying everything that's wrong with you because he's already made the point. What's wrong with you is you don't acknowledge God. The results of that run both deep and wide in the human race. Notice that this corruption is both the result of God's condemnation and the penalty of it, right? God is not a deist God who sits back and watches the world unravel. God upholds his righteousness by actively prosecuting your unrighteousness and my unrighteousness. It's just that the way that he does that is by unraveling the world, as we'll see. Now think about what a, a horrible condemnation that is. If God is the one who all thanks are due, who all goodness is from, he is, as we'll see in a minute, the God who is blessed forever, amen. The worst punishment he can bring on you is the active, the active pushing you away from the goodness that comes from reflecting his glory. All happy, C.S. Lewis once said that there's only one sort of happiness this world affords, right? Everybody wants to be happy. God designed the world, and he made one way to be happy. How is it? To be like him. He is blessed. You know what blessed means? It's happy. Okay? God is the happy God, and when you don't image him properly, you choose to plunge into destruction. But by choosing to plunge into destruction, sometimes people have this image of, well, humankind has hopped in a boat, and it's heading towards a waterfall. And it's just like the river of natural law is carrying them along, right? One of my commentators said, yes, but this verse says God gives it a push. The act of justice is saying, when you refuse to honor me, I will bring about all the consequences that that brings. You can't have joy and happiness in reflecting God if you choose to not acknowledge God, and the proof of that is that you are miserable and doomed, right? This is the grave reality of this text. Notice, first, Paul goes to the inner man. Paul's going to go to the inner man, then he's going to go to the depths of what it means to image God, and then he's going to go to the effect that that has on all of human society. So he starts inward, he goes downward, and then he looks broadly. That's where we go from sensuality to sexuality to society, and all of those express God's active judgment. God gave them up, verse 24. God gave them up, verse 26. God gave them up, verse 28. First, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity. Now, 
immediately when we read the word lust of their hearts, we immediately focus our attention on sexual things. Paul's going to get there. In fact, he gets there very quickly. And yet I'm convinced that here he means the desires of our hearts. When you remove God as the anchor and the, the gravitational pull of your heart's desires, your desires now run amok. They turn into Disney. Do whatever your heart wants, right? God says, follow me, and you say, I want to do whatever I want. I want to express myself, okay? Expressing yourself is God's judgment on you, right? Disney is a prophet of doom. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts, and quickly our hearts turn to impurity. God designed everything in his happy holiness. I use that on purpose. We'll talk about it in a second. And quickly we take God's good gifts and we drag them through the dirt. What does that look like? He defines impurity here for us, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Okay, That's pretty self-evident. I want to draw your attention to the word dishonoring. Remember, God is honorable. We didn't honor him as God. The result of not honoring him as God is the dishonoring of our bodies. God made them and he designed the gift of sexuality and he designed our desires to bring him honor. When you switch that, when you intentionally revoke that, the inevitable effect is dishonor. You're like, that doesn't sound like a big deal. Read on, it's really bad. Living in dishonor is not a happy place to be. But notice, very briefly here in verse 25, how he explains this swap, what's gone wrong with our desires that will then lead to the effects. This is kind of cascading. When your heart is wrong, the rest of these things follow. Because they're, they're... Lusts are dragging them away because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We've already seen that. Worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. I think in this case, worshipping and serving themselves the creature rather than the creator. And notice this core thing that is at the root of all evil sexual desire and all evil sexual practice. That's why it's right here in the middle between these two sections. God is blessed forever. Amen. God is happy. But happy is too small a word. It's too cheap a word. God's glory, his holiness is beautiful. I don't have time to do it this morning, but you should go read the Jonathan Edwards sermon on the beauty of God's holiness. It is the chief glory of his character that everything in it, our souls long to cry out, holy, wonderful, good. And the way that he designed both your desires and your sexuality as image bearers is intended to proclaim his happiness, goodness, and rightness. That means that every sexual thought and desire that is deviant from God's plan, and every sexual practice that is deviant from God's plan says, I don't believe that God is good. I don't believe that there is only one sort of happiness this world affords. I won't thank him for it. Because this is almost a trite example of this, but do you want to verify this a little bit in your thinking? Tell me. When your heart meditates on the greatness of God and your heart follows 1 Thessalonians 4, 
It's the will of God for you, your sanctification, and that is that you abstain from sexual immorality, right? And you pursue sanctification, that you don't transgress and defraud anyone in the matter, right? Why? That you not be like the Gentiles who do not know God, right? When, when your heart is that, is there not a joy and a goodness and a, a delight there that no amount of sexual desire or deviant practice can ever hold a candle to. You don't have to go too far down the road of deviance to know that that's true. It doesn't get better. Right? The core of this thinking is a rejection of God's goodness. And it destroys both our thoughts and desires and also the nature of being an image bearer. I've wondered for years, why did Paul choose to talk about homosexuality here? Of all the things that you could talk about to characterize and to, to pin down the human race on their rebellion against God, this seems to me to be an odd one. Why? Because, not because it's not a grievous evil. The New Testament and the Old Testament are unified in thinking about homosexuality as a grievous evil, but because it actually doesn't apply to all that many of us. It does to some, and in his culture and in ours, maybe more than in many other times in the history of the world. But it's still a pretty small sample size. Why this? I'm convinced because it cuts at the heart of rejecting what it means to be an image bearer. Paul is still tracking through Romans, or I'm sorry, Genesis 1 language. And the core of image bearing in Genesis 1 is that he made them what? Male and female with the usual glorious result of marriage. See, usual because it's not universal. But both the creation as image bearers as both male and female who must properly work together to display God's glory and most excellently work together in the institution of marriage is the heart of God's created intent. Okay? When people live out their proper identity and roles in the church and in marriage and in the world, God's glory is spectacularly proclaimed, which is why these things are always under assault. The deeper you go down this path, and Paul is going to dive deep into this thinking, the more you reveal that what's at the core of your hatred is a hatred of God's order. Notice verse 24, I'm sorry, verse 26, that their corruption pervades their sexuality. First, dishonorable passions, okay? We had dishonoring bodies, now we have dishonorable passions. It's interesting, the results have switched. When you reject God in your desires, it destroys your bodies. When you reject God with your bodies, it destroys your desires, right? It's interesting how he switches that. But then notice how he argues through this. He goes, I think, down to the core, okay? You could fit in this any form of sexual deviance, but he goes down to the ones that most directly, most deeply dishonor God. They all fit under this, but he goes right to the, to the heart of it. M women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And it's often been said, and I think it's true, although I can't validate it from the text, that he starts with women because it's women who usually hold their ground on these things longer. 
Usually men are the ones who are like, hey, we have a bad idea about sexuality. Why doesn't the whole society join us? Okay? That's not because men are necessarily more evil than other ways. It's just that men tend to lead in their rebellion, and women tend to resist that to survive. Okay? It's almost universal in the history of the world that it's men who plunge into homosexuality first and women who resist that, but I don't know that you could verify that in the text. I think he starts with it for the shock value. There are women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Okay, what are those? Well, he says likewise in verse 27 to give us more clue. The men likewise in the same way exchanged natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. We don't have time to talk about it this morning. We have talked about it when we've talked about sexual deviance in other passages. But it's both the action and the passion that are condemned here. There is no room in the Bible for safe homosexual desire. Both the heart and the hands are evil. Okay? The action and the thinking are evil. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. There's been so much read, written about what is the due penalty of their error. I don't know because the text doesn't say, but I guarantee you it's not good. <laughs> the result of rejecting God at such a deep level brings about deep deep destruction in someone's lives. If you doubt that, pick up a medical journal, not some people magazine. Pick up a medical journal and look at the results of what happens when you do uh, hormone blockers on young children. Okay? There's deep destruction that comes from deep-hearted rebellion. When you attempt to undo the very core of what God designed to bring glory to him, you undo most of what's good about living this life, even in a fallen, sinful world. Paul's argument, your thinking goes wrong, your identity goes wrong, and your society goes wrong. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The thinking, not the passion, is in view here, right? The first has your desires in view. This has your, your cognitive ability and particularly the way that you process what society ought to be like. And then notice this, this bullet machine gun list of evil things. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. All right. Paul has moved to the shotgun effect, right? If I didn't get you here, I'm going to get you on one of these, right? And he proves that because every one of you has been disobedient to parents at some point in life. Right? Unless you grew up an orphan and like, you raised yourself, as Piper said about resurrection, the exceptions are not the point, okay? uh, or about death. Somebody pointed out to him, a couple people haven't died. He's like, yes, the exceptions are not the point. <laughs> if you've missed in this list, Paul's already got you on refusing to give thanks. The effect, the effect of denying God results in sinful behavior. Do you know how important that is? And I know what time it is, and we are done. This is the end thing. Do you know how important it is to get that order right? Rebellion against God produces sinful action. Sinful actions don't produce rebellion. Why am I saying? Your and my Sin, when we sin, 
It's because we are by nature sinners. The evil effect in our thinking, in our desires, and in our world are the result of this core thing. I know God is real and I refuse to acknowledge him as God. By the way, the reason the gospel is glorious is because it is only in the power of the gospel that you may be moved to properly responding to God. The only solution for this desolation is to be found in absolute and sole faith in Christ. But it is so important that we get that right. I have talked to people, I've talked to this guy in a cockpit once while we were flying, and he was trying to convince me that I wasn't the sort of sinner I thought I was and he was worse, which is a very weird conversation to have, right? And he's like, but I bet you haven't, and he started producing a list like this one, right? I bet you haven't cheated on your wife. I bet you haven't murdered somebody. Well, I'm sitting in the cockpit. I hope I haven't, right? But the point of this is that you don't do all the evil things you could do. It's that your heart hates God. He wanted desperately to believe that I was sort of okay because I hadn't done these things because he wanted to excuse how unokay he was, right? If he could say, well, the reason you're sort of a nice person who likes the Bible is you just haven't done all that bad stuff and I've done more, maybe he could make up for that. But what I was saying, as earnestly as I could, is that you don't understand how evil I am. You've suppressed how evil I am and how evil you are because you've suppressed the supremacy of God for every second of life. The human condition is desperate because God's glory is amazing. And every moment we deny that, we deny our desperation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. May we bring this truth home to our hearts and to those that we share the gospel with. There is no reason, no recommendation of our own heart or conduct by which you should consider or would need to consider saving us. Nothing in our hands we bring. Solely to the glory of your grace and the gospel of Christ do we claim. We pray it for his glory and in his name.